So good morning, everyone. I'm really happy to be here today. My name is Anna Douglas, and I'm glad that you have chosen to join me today in exploring this question, which I know for me has been on my mind uh, in the last five or so years. Uh, It kind of sneaks up on you, doesn't it? Who am I now? So I was telling my my niece's daughter about this day. Her her daughter is ten, and I was saying, I'm, and she said, "What are you teaching about?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm teaching older people about who am I now." And she said, "Oh, did they forget?" <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a. a you know, I, I yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't she think that? With the, you know, the image of us doddering around, forgetting everything that that of course would be the case. So uh, I know you're not here because you have forgotten anything, maybe anything important at least. Um, but that this question is is one that has a lot of impact, and maybe since we were in our teens, it hasn't seemed so kind of um, significant to kind of grapple with. You know, when we were teenagers, we had the same question, did, didn't we? With the hormones raging and our life moving out into the world, who am I? That was where we began with this question of identity. And now here we are, <laughs> after 40 or 50 years of, of answering that question, of manifesting in a, a role, an identity, or maybe, maybe many identities in the world, now we are once again asking that question, who am I now? So it's a rich exploration, and I'm delighted to be here with you. I want to begin, we're going to sit in a few minutes, but I want to begin with a poem that I have read before in such gatherings. It's a poem by Roxanne Lanier, 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 I'm not sure how you say her last name, uh, called Arrival. Arrival. I come to old age as to an unfamiliar land, foreign in its ways, inhospitable to its guests. I find I have packed the wrong things, worn the wrong outfit, studied a language no longer spoken. The time of my arrival, the exact entry point are mysteries to me. There are some who look settled here, and that is the strangest thing of all. I want to ask, but I think I know, are they not inside as surprised and unprepared as me? Do you feel a little bit surprised and perhaps unprepared as you venture forth into this stage of your life? Perhaps so. And, of course, we live in a culture that doesn't give us a lot of uh, helpful uh, 
initiation, you could say, into a new way of being doesn't really tell us much about what is expected of us other than not to be a burden, not to uh, bother people with your needs. That's kind of sad. Or uh, go play bingo. (laughs) We don't need to hear from you anymore. Messages like that, you know, or, you know, take your drugs, be happy. We're giving you all these benefits now, prescription drug benefits, so that you can uh, vote for us, basically. So today I want to say a little bit about the orientation of this day. So we're, we're you, so you kind of know where we're going, what the trajectory is, what the expectation is. <clears throat> there are many points of view about aging out there in the culture. Today represents a point of view about aging which includes the spiritual dimension, and in particular the teachings of the Buddha that we. Uh, share here at Spirit Rock, the teachings of the Buddha that come through the stream of teaching known as Theravada, through the countries of Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka. That is the stream of Buddhism that we we teach here at Spirit Rock, not exclusively, but that is the main kind of uh, lineage that we reference. There are many other uh, points of view about aging. Uh, We can talk about aging from the point of view of health and how to care for the body, from the point of view of brain science, what to do to help the brain stay limber and resilient and uh, uh, active. We can talk about gerontology or... Uh, psychology of aging. All of these are are wonderful fields and rich with information, but that is not what we are going to be referencing today so much. What I wish to do today is to look at the spiritual dimension of aging, which comes from the practice of mindfulness. So I want to turn our attention to mindfulness and then go into a sitting to begin our day together. How many of you have uh, practiced meditation here at Spirit Rock? So you have received some instructions in mindfulness. Um, How many of you are completely new to Spirit Rock? Okay. So we have a a mix, and that's always welcome here. I will give instructions that hopefully will will cover both those for those who have practiced and those who are new to practice. Um, Today we will be doing some silent sitting. We will be doing some um, experiential work in dyads. Uh, a form that 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 I use in my teaching that is very provocative helps people to orient towards their own internal 
understanding in a very active way. It's a little different from silent sitting, but very productive. So in mindfulness, um, the first thing to say about mindfulness meditation, which we teach here, it, it is, is that it is a turning of our attention inward. So much of our time in our lives is spelt, spent with an outward focus. When we come to practice mindfulness, we are learning to still the body, to come into uh, an awareness of the present, what is, <coughs> what is here in the present, the body, the breath, the sensations, the sounds, very simple, obvious things of our experience, but ones that often go overlooked when our attention is outside of ourselves. And the question for the day long, this who am I now, is from my point of view only a question that can be answered by looking within. It is not a question that will be found by looking outside of yourself in the traditional ways that you have. Some people, it's true, as they age, take on, who am I now? Well, now I'm a grandpa or a grandma, or now I have more time to paint, or now I have more time to uh, volunteer, do the service work that I am drawn to doing. All of these are wonderful activities, but this is not the kind of identity that we're, we're, we're going to be pointing to today as a as a, as, a, uh, as a possibility. We are going to instead look at the question of identity from the Buddhist perspective. And this is a big, this is a big uh, topic. This is a big topic. And it's one that many of us have spent years exploring internally. But let me say briefly that what I am referring to is that dimension of ourselves which is not in form, which is not identified with the body or with the ego's accomplishments as being who we are. There was a lovely Zen teacher who who died last year, Darlene Cohen, maybe some of you knew her. I love her description of this dimension that we are uh, called to uh, explore in our practice, and she called it the one who is not busy. That dimension of ourselves that she called the one who is not busy. She gave this name to the aspect of ourselves that is not goal-oriented, and time-oriented, that is not concerned with gaining or losing, but is boundless and infinite. Boundless and infinite. So this is the perspective that we will be pointing to, the possibility of awakening to a larger sense of self, a larger sense of purpose, of meaning, of value, of connection 
to life itself. So we'll begin with a sitting, the practice of mindfulness. And so finding a posture where you can feel settled, where you can feel uh, a sense of uprightness, ease. One of the things that we explore a lot in meditation is sitting still with ease, with a sense of inner relaxation, spaciousness, ease. That may seem different. We think of ease as, you know, throwing ourselves on the sofa and lounging about. But this is a different kind of ease. This is a more internal sense of ease, of presence, of just being here in a very direct and simple way with nothing to do, nothing to figure out, nothing to force, nothing to... No, in particular, simply this present awareness of simply being here and noticing that you are here. So mindfulness is not thinking about our experience or trying to have any particular kind of experience, but rather it is that willingness to be present with the experience that is actually already here. Can we be aware of the breath? Can we, can we be aware of the feeling of our body as it's sitting? Noticing the contact of the buttocks with the cushion or the chair. Noticing what is here. In mindfulness meditation, we practice noticing what is here, and we discover that what is here we could describe as six different things. There's breathing. Breathing or sensing the body. There's hearing. Hearing sounds in the room or sounds outside the room. There's smelling. Perhaps right now you notice, you can notice even a slight scent of something in the room. There's tasting. We spend a lot of our times tasting food, drink, what we like or what we don't like. We can also bring mindfulness to seeing, 
when we open our eyes gently, we just notice seeing. Not so much what it is we are seeing, it's just the fact of it, that we are receiving colors, shapes, forms, light, shadow, through our eyes. We organize our world quite a bit based on seeing. So that's the five senses, breathing, sensing, smelling, tasting, hearing, and seeing. And then the sixth is thinking. In the Buddhist tradition, thinking is considered another sense door, another way in which we make contact with the outside world through our thinking. So rather than being lost in thought, we notice that we can actually be aware that thinking is here. Thinking is happening. Thinking, thoughts come, thoughts go. We begin to notice thinking is a process. Thinking is a process. Thoughts arise, they do their little dance, and then they vanish, unless we go and pick them up and repeat them, which we do do quite often, especially thoughts about who we are. So in our practice, we're not trying to uh, figure out anything in a psychological way, or why am I thinking this, or this is good, or this is bad, but simply to notice the bare facts of sensing, breathing, hearing, thinking, and to do this with curiosity, with openness, without a preference for one thing over another. And this understanding of our experience as fluid and always changing becomes an important understanding for, especially when it comes to the beliefs and images we hold about who we are. So right now, letting go of the words, noticing what is predominant in your experience. Just sitting, just breathing. Hearing sounds. Feeling the air on your skin. Noticing different sensations in your body, how they too arise and pass. Mm. 
<clears throat> and when nothing particularly predominant is happening in your experience, being fully present with the movement of the breath. Where do you feel the breath in the body? In the abdomen or in the chest? Or at the tip of the nostrils? Notice that as you breathe, you can also be delicately present with the movement of breath, feeling it in the body, noticing how it moves and changes. Each breath is different. Each breath is alive. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, hearing, breathing, thinking. (coughs) This is our aliveness. So for some reason, when we were sitting in silence, I was remembering some of my first teachers, who are really some of my elders, some of the people that I uh, remember with great appreciation for the gifts that they gave me. And so I'd like to invite all of you to think just briefly of who have been the elders in your life that you have, uh, you can say just simply, you know, how much you appreciate what they shared with you or gave you. Maybe you don't have anybody. I think if I hadn't come to the Buddhist practice some almost 30 years ago, I probably wouldn't have so many people to think about. But uh, my first, I'll tell you the story, my very first teacher was Sazaki Roshi. How many of you know Sazaki Roshi? Well, he is now 105 or something like that. (laughs) 
And when I met him, he was a mere 70. <laughs> but he was, you know, to me, he was pretty old then. Uh, let's see, how old was I? Younger, I can't remember. Um, and I, and he kept saying that we were such bad students that, you know, any day he was going to die because we were so bad that he, he didn't see any point in living. You know, it was like, oh my God, the man is going to commit suicide if I don't understand this koan, you know. Anyway, he was a great jokester. But um, I heard Leonard Cohen recently refer to him because he was Leonard Cohen's teacher, is Leonard Cohen's teacher. And at the age of 102, Leonard went to visit him and they... They used to drink sake together, so they were sitting there drinking sake. And Sazaki Roshi said to Leonard, Excuse me for not dying. <laughs> and I imagine we might all feel that at some point. <laughs> Anyway, I feel a lot of gratitude for Sazaki, for um, another Zen teacher of Maizumi Roshi, for a Tibetan Lama, Chagdad Rinpoche, all who, all of whom have died. Well, this is except for Sazaki, they have died. Kalu Rinpoche, all these people that were pretty old when I met them and were such uh, sort of lamps in the dark for me. So for some reason I'm thinking of them. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the theme of our day and how it relates to the Buddhist teaching. And then we're going to do an exercise together. And, and so that will be a big chunk of the morning. I'd like to begin with a story uh, of Ramdas that I heard many years ago, actually, and I thought it was kind of cute at the time. Now I see it a little more compassionately, I think. Anyway, he told the story of when he was, before his stroke, when he was uh, still feeling athletic and vigorous, he went. He said he would go surfing in Hawaii with his young friends. And then he began to notice that he couldn't really keep up with them in the same way that he was used to. And then finally one day he thought, what the heck am I doing out here risking life and limb with all these younger people? And it began to dawn on him that this wasn't an activity for, you know, that he could do so easily anymore. So he had a kind of wake-up moment. Oh, I guess the body is getting older. I recently taught a retreat for uh, yoga teachers, and one of them was a seventy-one is a seventy-one-year-old uh, yoga practitioner, a, a, a man very fit, and has been practicing yoga for many years. But now he's noticing that his hip is really in pain a lot. And he was told by his doctor that he may need to, you know, get a new hip. And he said when he was told that, his first thought was, I'm done. That's it. I'm done. 
You know, that voice of doom that we hear inside sometimes, like, oh, uh, I can't do this anymore. I'm old. Kind of a, you know, it's, it's some sort of recognition, but it often jumps to a conclusion that may not be entirely accurate. Because he was telling me in the context of a Dharma retreat where he said that that was the first conclusion and he could rethink it and also realize that there were still many ways in which he could still practice yoga. But we have that, oh, we hit that sense of oldness and oh, I'm done. Another story This one is a a woman I know who is a grandmother, and she was over at her daughter's house with a toddler and a new baby. And her daughter's friend was also there with her child, and they began to trade notes and tips about taking care of babies, breastfeeding, sleeping through the night or not, when not to bring the baby into the parent's bed, you know, those kinds of issues that young parents have to think about. And the grandmother, of course, had many stories to share about her own experience, but she noticed that her daughter and her friend were not really asking for her advice. (laughs) They didn't really listen much to what she had to say. They were much more interested in hearing from her. For her, that was a moment of, oh, life has moved on. She felt left out, unappreciated in a certain way. Ah. So these are three different stories which speak in different ways of changing realities. When any of us comes up against the loss of something we once assumed was ours, a skill, a capacity, a a, a knowledge, or a role, a role that we were really good at. I see this now as a Dharma teacher. The younger ones are coming. Oh, what does that mean? (laughs) Are the teachers waiting for me to die? You know, we all have those moments of, oh, I see, my role is changing now. And there's a sense, is there not, of loss. So I'd like to read a poem by Elizabeth Bishop. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch and look. My last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones. 
and vaster, some realms I own, two rivers, a continent, I miss them. But it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident, the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like disaster. So, we feel loss. In the Buddhist teaching, they talk a lot about renunciation. And Suzuki Roshi aptly said, renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. They get lost, just like Elizabeth Bishop wrote. This is the way it is in this human life. And now at this age of that you are, and let's see who's here actually. One of the things I like to do in these gatherings is to kind of do a little um, survey, you know, who's, who's who, what, what, where, what are we talking about here? So how many of you are in your 50s, over 55? Or, okay, now everybody should look around so you too can see who's here. How many of you are in your 60s? Wow, it's got your attention, this subject. <laughs> how many in your 70s? Aha. And how about 80s? Do we have anybody in their 80s? Not today. Six Some... months to go. Six months to go! <laughs> Bravo. Well, we're, we'll consider you our token 80-year-old. <laughs> Only six months to go. Six months to go. Six months. So two of you, six months to go. Yeah. So isn't it, how often in your life has this happened, that you've been in a room with only people 55 and over? Not too often. There's a certain, more more and more. (laughs) So the Buddha talked a lot about loss. So he said, birth will end in death. Youth will end in old age. Meetings will end in separation. Wealth will end in loss. All things that exist in cyclic existence are impermanent, are transient. That's very much the point of view of the Buddhist teachings. He never lets us forget the bigger picture. These are not meant to depress you. These are not meant to be, you know, uh, heavy. Or These are meant to be reflected on. There's many writings in the Buddhist tradition that are meant to simply... Keep reflecting on it. Is this true? Is this the way it is? Taking it in, getting used to it, as one of my teachers said. Getting used to it. 
This is not a, you know, we have this sometimes in our culture, this tendency to think if something happens untoward that it's a big mistake, you know, somebody dies that shouldn't have died or something is lost that shouldn't have... But the Buddha's view is is that it's not anybody's fault. There's nobody to blame. It is the way of things. It is the way of things. That things are impermanent. Yet when the loss is so close to home, so very personal as our very own bodies are, as our memory is, or our beloved spouse, or sibling, or even child, all of these are living in a world of change and are transient. They are here now, but not forever. So there's a wonderful teaching story that was given by Achan Cha, Jack Cornfield's teacher, Thai meditation master. He was talking about impermanence one day, and he said, I should use this glass. He said, you see this glass? You see this glass? He said, to me, this glass is already broken. I have no illusions about it being here forever. It's glass, it's breakable. It will break it someday. someday. He said, but now, while it is here, I can completely appreciate it, enjoy it, feel gratitude for this beautiful glass. So that is really the essence of this teaching, that on the one hand, yes, and on the other, wow, how amazing that what we have here is here. And let's not forget So when we hear about losses, we can have other reactions. We can draw conclusions about ourselves. When we have lost something of great value, we may feel victimized. We may feel really disappointed. We may feel, oh, poor me. My life is over. I'm done. It will never be good anymore. We have these reactions to change, some of which are not helpful because they increase a sense of disappointment or suffering. If we have been fortunate in our lives and we lose somebody or something, we may experience the grief of losing access to that which we once enjoyed. If we've had a disappointing life, we may feel the grief of unfulfilled dreams, dreams that will never come into fruition. Wherever we are coming from with loss, aging means seeing it, allowing ourselves to know the truth of it, and letting go. And so much of mindfulness practice can help us with this process of letting go. 
Getting older gives us a lot of reasons for feeling disappointed, a lot of proof that life is over. I can't play basketball anymore, or I can't do marathons anymore, or I can't uh, read so well anymore. Whatever it is that we're in the process of releasing, it's easy to arrive at a conclusion about it. I'm done, I'm useless, I don't have what it takes anymore. What other conclusions can you, have you seen in your own experience or noticed that may people make about loss and aging? What are the conclusions you draw? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, those things you mentioned that we loved that made us happy. Yeah. We're not going to be happy anymore. We're not going to be happy anymore without the things that we loved. Very common. Yes. Thank goodness I don't have to do it anymore. Thank goodness I don't have to do it anymore. So maybe some sense of relief. That's also, yeah. Yes. I've done something wrong. It's my fault that nothing has worked out. I'm a failure. I'm I'm ashamed. Yes, thank you. Now I'm going to be dependent on doctors. Now I'm going to be dependent on doctors. Anybody else relate to that? Yeah. That's what they'd like you to do. <laughs> yes. I'm invisible. I'm invisible. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes I find myself very attached to the illusion that because I'm older I should be wise. (laughs) Yes. Very attached to the illusion that because I'm older I should be wise. So we, we fluctuate between feeling like we are blowing it somehow or we have these idealized visions of how I'm supposed to be now that I'm old. I'm supposed to be wise. That's putting a lot of pressure on yourself. <laughs> Maybe it's wisdom to realize you don't have to be wise. Yeah. Melinda? I wonder, I, or I'm afraid I can't compete in the job market anymore. Yes, can't compete in the job market. Yes. Sometimes I feel like I just don't have a future now that I'm old. I don't have a future now that I'm old. How to live without a future? This is a great Dharma question. Thank you. Yes. Feeling out of the loop. Are we out of the loop? <laughs> Maybe we want to be out of the loop. Sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm happy to be out of the loop. I'm trying to get my Facebook page together. There's a woman here at Spirit Rock now who's helping all of us old teachers deal with the <laughs> Facebook and Twitter and all this kind of thing. But really, do I want to be in the loop? That's a good question. Yes. My mother died very angry and was angry for years. 
was building up to it because somehow she blamed everybody else. It was yes. Everybody else had done things that didn't make it possible for her to go on forever. Yes, everybody else is to blame for this disappointment. Or there was a student once who told me that when her father was dying, he'd been a very successful CEO, businessman. And while he was dying, he kept saying to her, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? As if death was some kind of giant mistake. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Sometimes um, I, I'm still working, and sometimes I feel like I'm not pulling my weight, so to speak, because I'm not physically as strong as I used to be. Yeah. So um, still working and feeling like I'm not pulling my weight and worrying about that. Anything else? These are such good observations. Yes. The process of death and dying becomes more real because it's closer. Yes. And some, I sometimes wonder, how will I deal with that? Yes. How will I deal with a poor diagnosis, mm-hmm. prognosis? Yes. What is my reaction going to be? Yes. Am I going to disappoint mm-hmm. myself? Mm-hmm. Or do I think I will be handling it fine? Yeah. What's it going to be like? Yeah, what's it going to be like to be in a dying process? What will, how will I respond when I hear a diagnosis? And and what will that be like? And will I do it well enough? I hear that in your your comment also. Like there's pressure on you know to do it really well. That's sort of around as well. You know, we've been good at everything else. Now we have to be good at this. <laughs> Really got to get this dying thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. Well, it occurs to me. I mean, death is probably the same for everybody, but dying can be extremely different. Um, and this really hit me when I had a little taste of what an agonizing death could have been like, and how unBuddhist I suddenly was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. I mean, I was an animal in that moment. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, a few more. Yes. Um, not just the physical body. I appreciate what everyone's saying, but I've had this overarching sense of is it safe? You know, just say more about. Well, I, I had a double lung transplant last year, and I've survived that, and I'm very well. And uh, I was at the wall of death, and. Um, that animal state of near dying was a kind of reckoning. Uh huh. So I, I then started thinking about just being safe in the body, being safe in yes. the body, being dependent upon the transplant team, mm. strangers that were contributing to my life, mm. the person that blew the jet. Yes. You know, sort of like right. And then I started thinking more beyond my physical uh, limitations, but um, about the future, you know. One, maybe one's uh, retirement fund isn't safe. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, your insurance right. isn't safe, or maybe the policies of the government about Medicare aren't safe. Mm-hmm. You know, so an overarching, not to be fearful, but just mm-hmm. the question of, am I safe? Yes, so... And that hadn't really occurred to me ever before. Well... You know, you just kind of boom on through life, and then you come up yeah. with moments, and you think, 
how's it going to be? Well, this is something I would say you're having an insight into the basic vulnerability of human life. That's just it. That's just it. So that, again, is, is, is an invitation to reflect, to take in something that we don't normally give a lot of attention to. We live in our secure world and imagine it will always be that way. So it is an opening, what we call an opening into another view of the way it actually is. And it doesn't have to be scary, it just is true. It doesn't mean we need to be fearful, but it, it, there's a truth in it that can make us realize what is here and what is important. I, I also reckon it to, um, I call it the weather report, you know, skies are blue 72, it's just what it is. Yes, mm-hmm. it is what it is, mm-hmm. that's right. And many people never allow themselves to have that kind of opening. So, in a way, you're. I hope you can find the gift in this. I feel that way. Yes. But the question still arises. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes. Where will I live? Who will I live with? And who will take care of me? Mm-hmm. Um. Hallie, I think you will be fine. <laughs> yeah. That's my main concern. I see. I spend time with my 85-year-old mother who's alone on a 300-acre farm where she spent 52 years and doesn't want to leave. Yeah. But she's alone for the first time in her entire life. Yeah. And it's dangerous and it's not that much fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she evidently wants to be there, and we can't argue with that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I, I find that as more and more of my peers or people in my community are facing death, illness, disability, loss, I just begin to um, wonder about how, as you get older, you carry that psychic load. That, that it's different than dealing with psychic, carrying the psychic load of my clients or patients or anything, that it's, it's my peers and that it's one after another after another. And mm-hmm. I can't, um, I, I struggle to, to hold that. Is it your responsibility to hold that? Mm-hmm. Sure. And um, I just yeah. As as I get older, it becomes kind of an onslaught. Yes. So in that, we need to find out what's really important. You know what what is of value here, and that's one response. And the other is like to this other person. It's an opening to something quite true, quite real. And so we, we need to get used to it. We need to understand that this is more and more the reality that we will all be, will be all around us. So how do we live with that? How do we be a person who has lost everybody they ever knew? Some very old people have nobody left at all. What is that like? So T.S. Eliot said, old men... Um, 
I can't remember. Old men need to be explorers. You know, that, that part of this aging and getting older is this, we, it opens us. It opens us to uh, exploring things that perhaps aren't so comfortable, but that actually also are part of the way it is. It's like we can't live in denial anymore. We need to <clears throat> be open. So where does that land us in our everyday lives? Maybe with more compassion. Maybe with more presence. Maybe with more care for the things that we can care for. Okay, one more. Um, these words, I found them, and they're, they're sort of like a mantra for me. And... Um, I don't know whether this would come under the category of support uh, through this process, but they helped me to be where I am at the time. Uh, the words are, uh, do what you can with what you have now. Yes. Beautiful. It's very supportive, I found. Yes. Because I think we're criticizing ourselves all the time yeah. for more and more limitations. Like yeah. You were yes. Do what you can with what you have now. How beautiful. How very beautiful. Yes. Yes. You will be the last one. Yes, you. Okay. <laughs> um, everything that we're talking about here reminds me of something I, I read many years ago. Uh, it was from Don Juan, Carlos Castaneda's. Uh, Don Juan was his Yaki uh, sorcerer mentor. And I think he talked about, maybe this isn't true, actually. Maybe it's, this might not be who the source is. It's like living each day with death over your left shoulder. No, he did say that. Oh, he did? Yes. Oh, I'm glad I remember Yes. That. <laughs> um, that, that living each day with death over your left shoulder, never knowing which moment is your last, yes. can bring you fully into the present moment. That's right. And this is one of the key teachings for today. That opening in this way to this fragile, impermanent, vulnerable human life also gives us the gift of appreciating this present moment. Fully being here. Because we see the, we see the trajectory. <laughs> we see where, we're, where all this is going. Um, so thank you all for your many wonderful observations. Now, isn't it a rich field of inquiry that we've already created here today? That already in the room are rich questions. And I just feel so happy that you come here and that we get to explore together in this way. I think this is what part of what is needed as we get older is a community that you all are being for each other today to explore such questions. You know, we can't, where else can we do this? It's hard, you know, our doctors don't want to hear, our family, oh, they get afraid, oh, you're going to die, don't, oh. You know, where else can we do this? So the Dharma is this willingness to explore these deep questions. So let's see where we are. So 
let's see. So aging offers many opportunities, challenges. It doesn't end up being the idealized version that we might have thought it was going to be. Uh, We want our elder years to be easy, comfortable, stress-free, filled with appreciation and love of our families, not a care in the world. We die in our sleep. We leave tons of money to our children. Everybody praises us and loves us. You know, how wonderful. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that was the way it is? These are not bad things to want, but they don't. So if they don't happen, what do we make of it? Do we feel like we're doing it wrong? Well, that's, that's not useful to feel like you're doing it wrong. How can you do it wrong? This is an inquiry. This is a question to ask. The Buddha said, and here's a key piece, wanting things to be different than they are is what causes suffering. Wanting things to be different than they are. So if we come into our aging process and want it to be different or feel like we are uh, in error because it is the way it is, that is suffering. And we can feel it, we can know it, we can recognize that in our experience. Sometimes in life we get what we want, sometimes we don't. And what is important is not so much whether we do or not, but how we respond. When we get what we want, do we imagine that we are somehow a special person, that we are, you know, one of God's chosen people and nothing bad will ever happen to us? Well, that's an error. If we respond to not getting what we want as being a failure or, you know, I'm doing it wrong, that's not good either. So how we respond is a key piece. Um, In this regard, I want to tell a story. I have a friend, Kathy Harris, who um, goes into San Quentin once a week and works with a group of men who are lifers. She's been doing this work for, um, particularly with the lifers for the last two years, and she has told me many times how completely amazing this group is and how she feels held by so much love and wisdom in this group. And I'm like, wow, that's something. So I went in with her last week to experience the group And indeed, it was a group of 50 men sitting in a circle, speaking quite a bit like we're speaking here today, with tremendous honesty, tremendous recognition of having taken a wrong path, having done things that they wish they had not. And out of that, sensing that there's some new consciousness that is at work in their lives that they're finding very, very precious, very valuable, that they are finding through their... I mean, imagine, you know, you're in prison for the rest of your life. You can arrive at a lot of conclusions 
based on that experience about your life being over and you blew it and I'm a horrible person and I'll never have anything good in my life ever again and the loss and the shame and all that. But out of that, they are slowly, slowly, and she's really good at working with them, finding their way to a new vision, a new possibility for how to live in this world. Now, it's, I don't want to make it perfect. It's not perfect. But there's so much a sense of this turning, of taking something that's difficult and turning it, transforming it into something uh, that is wise, that is awake, that is loving, that is good through and through. So Eckhart Tolle uh, has some beautiful things to say about aging in this regard because he sees aging as this opportunity for awakening, actually. He calls it the return movement in a person's life. Whether through old age, illness, disability, loss, or some kind of personal tragedy, carries great potential for spiritual awakening. The disidentification of consciousness from form. And he talks about leaving behind the outer purpose of our lives and beginning to wake up to the inner purpose of our lives. He says, your life has an inner purpose and an outer purpose. Inner purpose concerns being and is primary. Outer purpose concerns doing and is secondary. The true or primary purpose of your life cannot be found on the outer level. It does not concern what you do, but what you are. That is to say, your state of consciousness. As you turn inward and open yourself to an emerging consciousness, you bring its light into this world, and that becomes the primary purpose of your being here. The primary factor in all creation is consciousness. No matter how active we are, How much effort we make, our state of consciousness creates our world. And if there is no change on that inner level, no amount of action will make any difference. So uh, this, in some ways, is what many of you are sensing. Out of this difficulty, out of this sense of failure even, or... uh, discouragement or disappointment or lack of safety, all of these are have shaken you in some sense. You're being shaken. And now there is this opportunity to turn inward, to sense the way to hold your experience in a new way, a way to see what the inner purpose is trying to teach you with these experiences. 
Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So this this, uh, sense of the challenges of aging is uh, rife with opportunity. So I'd like to turn our attention a little bit more towards the culture's view of being old because that's also at play in us. It plays in our own struggle. The negative views that are held in our culture about being old. Why do we want to look young? Why don't we want to look old? What goes on in us when we see an old person and we react with aversion or we want to run out of the room? What are the thoughts? What are the feelings? What are the judgments? How do we react when we see our own face in the mirror? As one of you just told me once, she said, why don't you just do a day long on, on looking at your face in the mirror as you get old? Everybody should bring a mirror and practice looking at themselves with compassion. Because it's right there, isn't it? That aversion to the old. We even have that around objects, you know, we have an old car or an old sofa or an old whatever lying around. What do we want to do? We want to get rid of it. Out with the old, out with the old, in with the new. There's a lot of intensity about our desire not to look at old, not to be old, not to deal with old There was a cartoon in the New Yorker, uh, a woman sitting in her armchair in her living room talking on the phone to her friend while her husband is at the the window with like like an AK-47 with with the gun pointed out the window. And he's, and she's saying to her friend, he's angry about getting old. Yeah, we just don't want to deal with it. So go, you know. So the teachings ask us to look a little deeper. What is old? What makes something old? When something is old, it, it shows us time. It shows us the, the conditions of life as uh, having done their work, you could say, weathered us. We see time at work. There is a, 
aesthetic in the Japanese uh, art called wabi-sabi. Do any of you know that? Wabi-sabi. It's an aesthetic based on an appreciation of things that are old, that are worn, that are weathered by time, that show the the effect of the elements on on the surface or the evanescent nature of things that appear and disappear like cherry blossoms that appear and fall almost immediately here at spirit rock we we love the when we see the hills all green in the spring this beautiful coat of green that the hills all wear and then they now they're brown. Or the magical Venus transit that we perhaps saw or didn't see because we were afraid to look at this. <laughs> but we knew it was happening the other day. This speaks of this changing nature of this world that is, that is all around us. Or the, the rainbows, the sunsets that we so love to watch. These magical displays of this... Uh, amazing life that is fleeting, evanescent, coming and going. The Buddha said, Thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, and a dream. And human life partakes of that quality of uh, fragility and vulnerability. The Buddha said, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love is of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. So all these reflections on the true condition that we find ourselves in. Maybe some of you heard that when Steve Jobs was dying, he said, we are all naked. We are all naked. He saw through the illusion of, you know, how we live with our fancy clothes and our makeup and our beautiful cars and beautiful homes and, you know, all this <laughs> this thing that we can do that is so lovely and comfortable and makes our lives feel so abundant, fine. But we forget we are all naked. Take away the fancy clothes and all that, and we see something else. Mark Twain said, um, Naked people, oh, clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. (laughs) Isn't it true? So, (laughs) 
So we have lived in a culture where success is defined by getting what we want. And this doesn't seem to be part of that agenda. Getting what I want. Let's see. Being old. Is that on the list? Probably not. Probably not. But here it is. So when we get something that we don't want, how do we respond? So when we turn away from the external purpose the, to the outer purpose to the inner purpose, we find the inner purpose is not about wanting and accomplishing and gaining on that outer level. Not at all. A poem by Jennifer Wellwood called Renunciation. There will always be voices that promise you greatness and glory. They call out from the worldly marketplace. They call out from the spiritual marketplace. They call out from the bigger, better, more marketplace. Do not buy their false promises or purchase their ephemeral wares. What fulfills for a moment is not worth the price of your soul. Want only what is true. This will lead you to the well of your deepest sorrows. Follow that passageway all the way down. (coughs) Become the dark emptiness of your absent core. Be still, don't measure the waiting. Be still, let the waiting become a fire. Be still. Let the fire show you its secret heart. Gather yourself there, and the luminous universe opens. So this is a beautiful poetic description of this turning from the outer purpose to the inner purpose. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, who couldn't be more different than Jennifer Wellwood as a being. He's a monk. He's, he's been a monk for many years. He loves being a monk. So here's Jennifer, a therapist who lives in Marin, very much in the world, a worldly person. And here's Bhikkhu Bodhi, a monastic. What does he say about renunciation? Very much the same thing. He said, Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of desire, when we investigate closely with keen attention, clinging falls away by itself. In this investigation, our concern must not be with what is pleasant, but with what is true. We have to be prepared and willing to discover what is true, even at the cost of our comfort. Real security lies on the side of truth, not on the side of comfort. So this turning inward is not without its difficulty. It's not without its challenges. You can hear that, right, in all that I'm saying. But certainly the point of view of the spiritual journey is one of taking that which is difficult 
as our teacher, finding the pearl, you could say, in the in the the oyster that is irritated by sand, and out of that comes a pearl. Finding the pearl in the midst of whatever difficulties our own life is showing us. So aging is a wonderful teacher. It shows us the truth of suffering and the futility of wanting it to be different. It shows us the truth of impermanence, of all that we hold dear. And this afternoon we will look at the truth of emptiness, of self, what we take to be self. So these three, the teachings of impermanence, of suffering, and emptiness are called the three marks of existence. And they are considered doorways to awakening. Nobody awakens without having looked deeply into the, their own experience of these three uh, marks of impermanence, of suffering, and of emptiness. And aging gives us the opportunity, you could say, to study these truths up close and personal. They are paradoxical truths Like the irritant of sand in the oyster shell, our difficulties bring forth pearls of wisdom, of love, of understanding, and peace. As has been said, this sense of loss can bring us very directly into the preciousness of the moment. And we see that how we spend this precious time matters matters what we do with our precious time. What is precious to you? What do you want to spend your time on? May Sarton, when she was in her 80s, wrote this beautiful poem, which I won't read all of, but she said, Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I have been dissolved and shaken. I have worn other people's faces. Now to stand still, to be here, to feel my own weight and density. My work, my love, my time, my face, gathered into one intense gesture of growing like a plant. So it is this sensing of what we are here to do. What is our purpose? What is our, what, how do we wish to spend whatever time we are given in this precious life. So, we are going to go into an inquiry together. Oh, let me just read you one last thing about... um, So, this encouragement to come more deeply into the present is really at the heart of all of the... Buddhist teaching, to come more deeply into, to see the gift of being here fully with a sense of the fragile, fleeting nature of our lives, with the sense of the preciousness of this 
time that we have left of the idea that in the present lies everything that we could possibly uh, need. So Leonard Jacobson said, you spend very little time in the present moment. Reality exists only in the present moment. Therefore, you spend very little time in reality. (laughs) So certainly, we are invited to spend more time in reality as we age. So thank you. A lot of words. Take what's useful. If it's too much, let it go. There's nothing here you need to remember. Um, these talk, this talk today will be recorded mostly. So um, don't feel a pressure to r- retain it. You can go back. Uh, there's a website called dharmaseed.org. This, what is said here today will be available to you on Dharma Seed. So. So now we're going to do uh, an exercise together, an inquiry. Um, How many of you have done inquiry before? I know some of you have, and some of you haven't. So inquiry is done with a partner. So we're going to, uh, before we move, let me just say a little bit more about inquiry. Inquiry is a way of, it's like a meditation out loud. You're using the form of the inquiry to inquire more deeply into your own experience of something, a subject that I will be telling you what it is, um, so that you have an opportunity to be very present with yourself, to speak from a place of presence. There's no hard, you know, there's nothing you need to know to answer these questions. It's just taking the question and then seeing what response wants to come and very simply saying what is true for you in that moment. So so this inquiry has three questions and you will find a partner, you will sit across from your partner and once you are situated, I will give you the questions. So right now, why don't you find a partner, and that can be as easy as turning to somebody close to you. And sitting across from them, you might want to spread out in the room. Um, Do you have a partner? Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. Those who are clumped together, you might want to spread out a little so you don't end up hearing the people around you so much. It's good to spread out, have a little... Okay, listen up, everybody, for the instructions here. So this exercise is called a repeating question. And that means that um, one of you will ask the other a question. Or in this case, there are actually three questions. But I'll explain that in a minute. And they answer... You say thank you, and then you ask the same question again. You don't change the question. You ask the same question again. That's why it's called a repeating question. This allows them to take another look and maybe come up with a different answer or go a little deeper into, the, into themselves and see what else is there about this question. So this question has three Parts actually, it's a three part question, you could say. So, the first is Where is the past? Where is the future? And what is here? So, you might want to write this down Where is the past? The person answers. Where is the future? The person answers. What is here? The person answers, and then you say thank you. And then you ask those three questions again, giving them time to answer each one. Where is the past? They answer. Where is the future? They answer. What is here? They answer. You say thank you. And then you ask that same sequence again. Okay, any questions about that? Yeah. Um, I will time it. There will be some minutes you'll do this, and I will ring a bell. So you don't change roles until you, I ring the bell, and then you'll change roles, and the person who's answered will ask the question. Okay? Does anybody have any questions about how to do this? Wait, we're all going to start together. Anybody have any questions? Okay. So decide who will be the questioner first. Pandora's box is open and active. 
So would anybody be willing to share anything they, they discovered or any comments about that exercise? Yes. There's one back there, Melinda. Thanks. Um, it was this incredibly um, open, vulnerable, intimate, intimate space. And it was like watching the clouds go by. Because oh. just moment by moment yeah. by moment by moment by yeah. moment shift and changed. And yeah. It was absolutely beautiful. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Who else? This is not, however, recommended to do at a party. (laughs) You're talking to somebody and you say, who are you taking yourself to be right now? (laughs) Over and over and over again. (laughs) Um, First of all, for myself, I, I realized that when I was in my, like, victim mind, um when I would state something in that manner, right behind it was the next, my next thought was, no, and, you know, no, I'm an exceptional woman. And uh-huh. So, um, which was surprising for me. So you saw both sides. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I like the exceptional part as opposed to normal. Yes. <laughs> well, it sounds like a welcome relief. Yeah. 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 And then one of the things I noticed about my partner was um, that, she was speaking in a third-person type, um, and more, and that was more, um, okay, less positive. But when she said, "I am, I am a resident of this community," it was, you know, her whole body language, face yeah. changed, and yeah. and when she slipped in and out of saying "I am" and, and then the third person, and each uh-huh. time she said "I am," it was with strength and. And, um, you know, just, you know, it, it really hit her deep. So. so your experience of that was? That uh, my experience of that was, it was powerful. It's powerful to be in your own, in the yes. I am, I guess. Yes, yes. and you, you are giving her some, some feedback. I don't know who your partner was, yeah. but I hope she's I, listening. I did give her that feedback. <laughs> Good. And I did ask her if I could share that. Yeah, oh, great. That's nice. Thank you so much. We have this, and then you. Um, Of those three Buddhist types, the grasping and the adversive, and the third one I call it confused, but I'm not quite sure if it's confused. Um, I had no relationship ever to the third one, and I thought that they must be like drug addicts or something. I couldn't figure out who who would be in the third group mm-hmm. and still be like walking around or something. <laughs> I, I just, um, I, I've been really baffled by oh, being baffled. I think I know where this is going. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay, then I don't have to wrap it up. So I, I'm, I'm, having, I'm having a really hard day, and it's been very painful. And so I thought, well, I... I know the answers to this inquiry, and I, I've said all of my angry titles of who I assume myself to be, and suddenly it just hit me um, that really it went right back to like being really young, mm. and then it went to total confusion and grief. 
And that was really surprising because like, it, it, and then I thought, well, that's some connection to this whole five years of feeling like I get the first two types, I don't get the third type. And I think it's because I would never consciously, it's really hard, allow myself to go to that level. So I, I think I'd, at some point like to even hear more about that level now that I sort of dipped in. But that's what I got. So I was really well, surprised. So beautiful. And this is, for me as a teacher, listening to you, I would say this is good news. It may be a little shaky, more vulnerable feeling is what I'm getting. So, you know, we do things not to feel vulnerable. So we, we set up, you know, our world so we don't have to feel certain things. And for you, for some reason, being confused feels vulnerable. Or more open is another way to say it. So just gentle with yourself. Just get used to it. It's a good thing. It's not something erroneous or to be feared. It's actually, wow, look at me. I... How is it to feel more vulnerable, more open in a certain way? The heart is opening. It's definitely strange. It's definitely strange. Thank, thank you for saying that because when we, when we open in a new way, it's confusing. We, it, we, don't, I, we don't recognize ourselves. It's like looking in the mirror and not knowing who's there. You know, we don't recognize this part of ourselves. But it, it's very much the territory of what we're, just, what we're exploring today, going into places that feel a little less familiar. Thank you. And Nancy had... <clears throat> uh, who I'm taking myself to be this afternoon is uh, my aching knees and my aching lower back and my warm body. And uh, that reminds me, because as I age and I have more little things like that going on every day in my body, that how easy it is and, uh, and a challenge to live with to slip into I'm my aching body. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know that that's, that's just more of the passing phenomenon, but... It's easy to get hooked into, like, where's the Tylenol and, you know, where's the mm-hmm. cold compress, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, the whole body identification. Mm-hmm. And so where in the body does it feel really easy, pleasant, mm. comfortable? That's a good question. Yeah, that's a good yeah, question. I like that. <laughs> I, I, I like that. Let's see. It's got to be someplace. <laughs> it's got to be someplace here. <laughs> I'd say uh, probably is. the middle torso. and yeah. uh, Oh... My calves, my feet. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Can we give equal attention yeah. to that? This is a really good thing you're bringing up. I'm so <laughs> glad it came up because as we get older, of course, there's more unpleasant sensations in our bodies that we call pain, ache, weakness, whatever, tingling, whatever. So we have to also consciously remember that there are always there's always something pleasant to notice as well it's hard to believe when we're in the middle of pain that any there's anything pleasant anywhere but if you look and you're honest with yourself you will find something pleasant somewhere in your world 
Maybe it's in a pleasant sight, a pleasant sound, a pleasant taste. Or maybe it will be in your body, the tip of your ear. Maybe no problem. (laughs) So be sure to notice that. Oh, this is also present. And it's really a useful thing for for the, the sense of collapsing into an identity with all of our infirmities. Notice where it's easy, where it's comfortable, where I feel a sense of well-being. Wow, that's so much better, isn't it? It is. Thank you, Anna. That's yeah. a very useful teaching. Oh, good, I good. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad. Who else? Here's one. It's interesting what you brought up about confusion because... Um, at first, um, Noreen was hammered. I felt like I was being hammered. Yes. Hammered by this question. Yes. And I was very in my goal-oriented mind. You know, who do you take yourself to be right now? <laughs> I started getting, like, really anxious. Yes. And actually, when I got confused, it was a huge relief. Oh. I actually enjoyed it. Oh. I'm very rarely confused. I'm oh, usually I very see. oriented and goal-directed. Yes, right. So um, I gave really short answers. Mm. And she kept hammering me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. And, she. Uh, <laughs> and I really wanted to just just put my hands over my ears and say, "Stop asking me this damn question." Yes. yes. And <laughs> then I just got like completely confused, and it was like a thousand pound weight oh. was gone. So the I actually, pressure was off. Thank maybe. you. I've enjoyed being confused. Yes. <laughs> thank you. It sounds like a relief from too much pushing yourself. Right. Yeah. You're it, you're completely permitted to be confused. At Thank least you. when you come to Spirit Rock, you can just let it rip. <laughs> I'm liking it. Thank you. Oh good. <laughs> Uh, Sheridan. Well, I thought that question was very interesting. Who do you take yourself to be? Yes. Like, what delusion are you holding <laughs> right at this moment? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so one of my answers was the Queen of England. Since <laughs> Who I take myself to be. Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there were a few times when Marianne asked me that, and there was just really a blank, just blank. Blank yeah. sheet of paper, yeah. blah. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. I kind of like that. So, yeah. 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 So it both reveals... Um, that there is something fabricated going on. We're taking ourselves to be all these different things and that somewhere in the question is the implication that that's all it is. It's not something real, enduring, absolute about ourselves that we are reporting on. That we are many, we are, there are many selves inside. Did anybody notice that? How many different selves appeared? Which one is you? Which is the real you? Now, some, some, you may have some sense of some of them being, yes, this is the real me, you know. But, or this is the real me. But is that any more real than anything else? So we poke around a little. We play. We get to, you know, 
be playful about it. It's like when you're a kid and you're dressing up in different costumes. Oh, I'll be the Queen of England, you be the prisoner, or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, and then we switch, you know. It's like that. So we're playing, and, and we have gotten stuck in our minds, in our adult minds, and thinking we are, this is more serious than, you know, I really am this rotten, horrible person that if only people knew, you know. But that's also fabrication. It's all fabrication. That's what's good about seeing all this. Yes? Halfway through, I had this image of something like a wheel of fortune. Uh-huh. It's the wheel of Dharma. Um, could see this big wheel, and every time she asks a question, there was like Father Time was spinning it, and all of the the me's uh-huh. were the around me's. the wheel, and it was, yes. a, it was a riot. It was a riot. And it wouldn't go away. It kept coming back. Who are we now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Great. All the me's, yes. There, oh. Oh. That's okay. We'll come back. We'll give Melinda more <laughs> Thank you. running around to do. At first, I felt like I was just sort of playing, kind of making it up. And then towards the end, I said, I'm my consciousness. And it was, oh. And we laughed. And it just felt right. Yeah. Um, okay. Lovely. There was one over here. And then we'll stop. I've just really come to love um, doing exercises as well as, you know, the talk and the meditation and just what a beautiful part of that is. Oh, um, good. Thank you. But I also want to admit to um, to the moment of utter terror I felt when you walked out of the room and I was afraid I was going to be asking that question, you know, for the rest <laughs> of my life. Thank you for your honesty. I... Maybe I'll do that sometime. I'll just disappear. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, huh. Okay, thank you all. And let's look at what the Buddha said when he was asked that question. I love this story. Because the Buddha, you know, had this big awakening, right? He sat under this tree and sat all night and he had his big big awakening, enlightening understanding of the whole show, you could say. And his his uh, identity or lack of it in the midst of all that. So when he left and was walking down the road some days after his awakening. Evidently, he looked pretty bright. You know, he looked, he kind of shone, and people were noticing, wow, this guy looks cool. So people would ask him, you know, wow, what have you been up to? What, what's your story? You know, what, uh, are, are you an angel? Are you, are you a master? What, you know, who are you? So the Buddha didn't go into a long story about, well, you see, I was this prince and I was living in the palace and had a really great life, 
but I really had this spiritual yearning inside, and I wanted to leave, but my father wouldn't let me, and we had a big fight, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> He didn't tell the whole story like that, nor did he say, I am the great knower of everything, come sit with me, and I'll share it with you, and blah, blah. No. He only said three words when I said, who are you? I am awake. I am awake. Short and sweet. So, there's something about waking up, evidently. It keeps your life pretty simple. It keeps your sense of identity pretty simple. So, it goes very much counter to our notions of who we're supposed to be, who we're trying to be, our resumes, our, you know, the whole thing. So, um, one time years ago at Insight Meditation Society, there was a teacher there whose name was Munindra. And one night Munindra was giving a talk he was Joseph Goldstein's Indian teacher. Burmese, was he Burmese? Yeah. Anyway, he was giving a talk and he said, you know, the thought of your mother is not your mother. <laughs> and I was really struck by that. As the, the way the Dharma works, you hear things and then suddenly you hear something and it wakes you up a little bit. It's kind of the way it works. Probably I'd heard such stories before, but this time it really was like startling. Oh, the thought of your mother. So he said, no thought of your mother can ever capture her in her, what we could say, suchness, her, the fullness and, and beingness of who she is can never be captured by words by a description. It will always be partial and incomplete. So I see some of you nodding and there's that understanding that yes, words are, are not able to capture the essence of um, anything. You know, anything. The sound of the bird. It's one thing to hear it directly. Now it's stopped. It's another thing to, oh, that's, that's a red-winged blackbird and they have these habits and they go here and they do this. and you know That's another way of being with that. But with practice, you, you, you're being invited to the direct experience. The direct experience. So in the same way that Manindra said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. I would like to say to you, take this in for a minute. The thought of myself is not myself. Say that to yourself. What is that like? Freeing. Intriguing. 
confusing. Uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Comfortable. <laughs> and there we have it. <laughs> Comfortable, uncomfortable. Yes. Anybody else? What part of my... Huh? We're leaving. Yes, for those of you who have some negative self-images... This should be good news. For those of you who like your resume, <laughs> looks good, looking good, looking good. Maybe, a, wait a minute, where'd I go? Yet the Buddha said over and over, so there's that side. And then the Buddha also said, with our thoughts, we make the world. And so it's worth um, tending our thoughts with care, because our thoughts have power. As impermanent and transient as they may be, they still have a lot of power. So when I heard as a child that I wasn't musical not like my mother who had studied the opera. I wasn't musical. I played the violin terribly. I I wasn't particularly good at singing. But hearing that, I wasn't musical. That was the kiss of death. I mean, I am not musical. I'm still not musical. (laughs) Something that was told to me 70 years ago, and I'm still like, I am not musical. So words have an impact. Descriptions have an impact. So there's that paradox of both the uh, futility of ever really saying what something is, and at the same time the power of words, the power of thought itself to influence our reality, if not create our reality. And we see how Thoughts construct a world. Our thoughts about ourselves influence us, create self-images, beliefs about who we are and what our capacities are. And some of those are useful. Some of those are, you know, true in a certain sense, you know. So there's some something to pay attention to there. But on the other hand, when they constrict or constrain our sense of uh, capacity or potential, then they're in the way. Maybe if I had, you know, if nobody said I wasn't musical, maybe I could have played the piano. You know, if I hadn't believed it so much, I never got a chance to find out because I so believed that. Melinda. I wanted to say, Anna, you brought us my favorite song. Oh. <laughs> Leonard Cohen is musical. Leonard Cohen is musical. I'm just... Not, well, this is true. I love Leonard Cohen, so that's not, that's not what's at issue. It's my own, you know, capacity to make music. So... Um, <laughs> no, I've never thought of taking violin lessons. It horrifies me, the very thought of taking <laughs> 
not to mention my dog and other people who have to live with them. Um, so, so, um, so where were we? So can you see both sides, both the power of thought and the limitation that when believed, we can get caught in a web of images or beliefs that may not be serving us. That's the, that's the uh, thing to kind of settle on. And then there's the, the difference between the thought about yourself and the simply being with yourself. What is it like to be with yourself? Sitting and breathing. Sitting and listening to the sounds. Simply being here. with no description necessary, with no idea about who it is that is doing this or what she needs to accomplish. (coughs) With meditation, we get to know that person, that being who is quite attentive actually and has a kind of wisdom that's not based in other people's ideas but is based in (coughs) noticing attending learning being open to the world inside and out that person is very worth getting to know very worth getting to know. He or she has many qualities that you will benefit from. So I'd like to go a little more now into anatta. So anatta is this this teaching of emptiness and it, it, it really is uh, uh, sort of hard to talk about, but um, this morning we talked about meditation as being, uh, being aware of breathing, sensing, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, and thinking as the objects of our experience. When we notice that things are constantly changing. I sit, there's breath, there's thinking, there's hearing, there's seeing, there's all these processes going on at one time. For example, do you know right now what your body is doing? Anybody know what their body is doing right now? Breathing. Mostly, we... we, um, looking for my glasses, hiding from me when I need them. Mostly are... Um, is there anybody? Is that it? 
Could you hand me my bag? <laughs> this is, now you're seeing it. <laughs> okay, glasses. This will help. Um, our body. Mostly we say my body. We think our body is ours. And we kind of maybe take pride in ownership or maybe not. But the body has a life of its own that you know nothing about. So here's some body facts. The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body replaces a new head of hair every two to five years. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body makes new stomach lining every five days. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every breath we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells. The body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. And it's doing all of this without any knowledge, for the most part, on your part. At any given moment, all these different parts of your body are busily appearing or disappearing. So if you think you are your body, which body are you talking about? (laughs) The body you have today or the body you had three months ago? The body is a process, just like every other aspect of our experience, just as our mind is a process. The mind of thinking and feeling and thoughts and images. So, looking at anatta is very much looking at how we create a world which uses nouns. Me, you, that person, spirit rock, as if nouns were the thing. But actually what we're, what is in reality is many processes occurring at the same time. We are, you could say, a mind-body process. We are hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, much more than we are Anna or a woman or a man. We are these living Processes. So this is a, a way of looking at redefining what is actually the reality of a person. And when it comes to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, we can see that everybody has these, this way. You know, everybody sees, everybody hears, everybody senses, breathes, all that. But not everybody thinks thinks my thoughts, do they? So the idea that our thinking itself is an aspect of, is a process that is impersonal in the same way that hearing, smelling, tasting, breathing is, 
seems completely not the case. We take our thinking to be quite personal, do we not? Quite private, do we not? But let's take a closer look. For example, where did we learn to think? How did we learn to think? We learned as a child the language that was being spoken around us by our parents for the most part or by other caretakers. Maybe, how many of you learned to speak English as a child? How many of you learned another language as a child? Some of you have learned other languages. What was the language you learned? Yeah. Uh, French. French? Indian. In- India. Hindi? Marathi. Hindi? Uh, Hindi was spoken also, but my mother tongue was Marathi. Marathi. Yes. Beautiful. Who else? Yes. Greek. Greek. So do you all think in those languages? The language that you learned? Yeah. So here's a woman thinking in Greek, Marathi, French. I can only think in English because that's the language I learned. If somebody said, have a few thoughts in Hindi or Marathi, I would be, you know, pretty thoughtless. (laughs) I wouldn't be able to have any thoughts in those languages. So we learned the language that was spoken around us, and that is the language we begin to think in. So I can only think in a certain language that was given to me. I didn't make it up. I also only learned the words that were used around me or that seemed important to the people around me. Like maybe some words uh, like from particle physics or something. I never learned those words because they weren't spoken. You know, I've never been exposed. So somebody says, you know, use the word neutrino or something, I probably wouldn't know how to use it because I don't, it's not one of my words. So there's a limitation there. And then the language has within it or the people around me teaching me the language had certain values of what was important to think about. Like it's really important to think about um, your teeth. You know, maybe my parents, I'm making this up, but maybe my parents were dentists or something and they really valued having really great teeth. So I had to give a lot of attention to dental care or taking care of my teeth or you know, visiting the dentist. So I might have a whole lot of thoughts going on about dental, dentists and teeth. Whereas if I'd, been, if I'd grown up in a, in a country where, you know, it was war-torn or where there was a lot of poverty, you know, I would be thinking about things that a person thinking about dentists wouldn't be thinking about. So our conditioning plays a great deal of... Uh, influence on how we, what we think about, what we value, what's important to think about. I've given a lot of time in my, in my adult life to thinking about Dharma, so that a lot of my thinking is about Dharma. And that will happen, you know, if you continue, you, you will have more thoughts. But whatever area of where we have 
specialized, where we have given attention to what we value, what we care about. Those are the kinds of things that we think about. So, so the other thing about thinking is that, you know, it seems like we're in control of our thinking. But are we really? <laughs> and this is one of the teachings of, of, that comes to us from aging, how really out of control we are. You know, thinking of that person that we used to know so well, and what was their name after all? Um, and then I remember one time, you know, I was doing a loving-kindness practice, and in loving-kindness practice you repeat phrases over and over, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful. And so one of my phrases, I was doing this for weeks on end, practice, and so one of my phrases, may I be free from harm. And one day I heard, loud and clear in my own mind, may I be free from Harry. <laughs> and I was like, Harry? Who is Harry? You know, it just, it just it bubbled up. May I be free from Harry? Who knows why? So the mind has a mind of its own. The mind does its thing. So all of this is to point out that um, our thinking has strong influences on it that come from other places and that it's not as amenable to our will as we would like to believe at times. So, looking at thought in this way, what does it do? Hopefully it brings a little more sense of curiosity about your own mind, a little more sense of objectivity about what is going on here and who all this is happening to. How do I, what do I believe about myself? What are my images of myself? And how can there be a sense of greater freedom around those images? So we're going to do another inquiry um, Actually, I think we'll start, it's not so much an inquiry as an exercise that it would be good to have a pen and paper for. So, does everybody have something to write with and something to write on? Maybe Melinda will get some paper.
Thank you. Oh. Melinda, there's there's somebody. Okay, so this is a a self-reflective inquiry. This is an exercise for you to uh, look inside and reflect on for yourself using the pen and paper to write down anything that seems significant or something you'd like to remember. You don't have to write down everything. But just anything that stands out so you will have it. So closing your eyes, relaxing, just closing your eyes, breathing, and remembering a little bit of the former exercise. Who are you taking yourself to be right now? And reflecting on one or two of the stories you tend to tell yourself. Stories you tend to tell yourself about who you are and or how you are doing. Is it a happy story or a sad story? Is it an angry story, fearful story? Is it a joyful story? What plays as if it were a tune on the jukebox? What is it that simply plays in your mind that influences your sense of who you are and how you are doing? Maybe there are some familiar words you use to describe yourself. What are they? What are the words or phrases that you that are that come up that feel so familiar like yeah that's me not you all of the time but certainly some of the time Words that feel particularly loaded or meaningful. They can also be positive words. Words like, I am persistent, or I am patient, or I am courageous. Also those words that you feel a particular resonance with as descriptions of yourself.
Write down at least three words. Words that you identify with as being important aspects of who you are, of how you think about yourself. Others might not see you this way, but you see yourself this way. You might want to stand up and stretch, and then we're going to do another piece of this exercise, but stay in silence, please. Just stand up, let your body, your knees, everything rest for a minute. Don't don't leave the room, please, because we're not going to... Okay, all right. Well, can't argue with that. <laughs> I never argue with people who say they need to go. Could somebody round up anybody in the lobby if they're still out there?
Okay, so now I'd like you to choose three words and write the sentence, I am, and then each of those words, I am maybe unlovable, mean, and deluded. (laughs) Or you could choose positive words. You could also say, I am loving, patient, and deluded. Whatever words seem most right for you. Any combination. And just sit with those words. Close your eyes. This is a closed eyes exercise. So once you've written down the words, just put your paper aside and sit with those words. Feel the resonance of those words that describe who you think you are. This is going to require some concentration. So take a moment to center yourself, feel your body, feel your breath. Be present, get here. So in this exercise, I'm going to ask you to repeat the sentence, I am, silently to yourself, I am unlovable, mean, deluded. Now take away the word, the the last word of the sentence, the third word, take it away, drop it off. In your mind, just let it go. So you're left with now, I am blank and blank. Now take away the second word. Let it fall away. So now you are, I am blank. Now take away the first word, I am. All you're left with is, I am. (coughs) Sit with that. And now let go of am. All you have is I. And now let go of I. What is here? What is left?
Has anything been lost? Has anything been gained? Who is here? So opening your eyes coming back into the room. Would anybody be willing to share their experience of that? What was that like for you? Yes. Melinda, would you mind? Well, it occurred to me I think it was in the first part. There, there's not a word that would not describe me. I mean, I couldn't think of a word that would not. I mean, I could have filled five pages with words, you know, that described me. And at the end, you know, with the with the eye, I mean, you know, I'm a 79 year old woman sitting here, a little cool and surprised that it's cool. I mean, I just it was incredibly freeing. Yes. I loved it. Yes. I, I you know, and then I had the thought, oh, I wanna I wanna be here with I and maybe I'll be more with I. <laughs> you know, I Why would you not? Why would I not? Because my mind just <laughs> Yeah, why That's would right. I why yeah, why would I not? Why would you not? I mean right now yes. I I am thrilled and just feel something really has important yes. important has happened I would in say my life. This is important. Yes. Wonderful. Very good. Yeah. Why would you not want to be with I? Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Uh, there was a very nice surprise for me. Uh, when the word I was dropped, I suddenly became aware of everything being alive. I was part of life. Yes. I could hear better. I could sense better. Yes. So that I was living. I was part of life. Yes. Yay. So one of the things we discover is the, all those definitions separate us. Create separation. Thank you. Yes. Endless possibility. Mm. That's what came to you? Yeah. 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 In the beginner's mind, there are endless possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. Mm -hmm. So we try to adopt beginner's mind. Yes, Nancy. 
after I dropped all the words and you know the descriptive words that weren't nice and got to I and then dropped the I because I sort of equated the I with ego I thought <laughs> I mean my I, I just was the body composed of all those things you sort of listed that are sort of very impersonal and then reflected on what the seeing is, the hearing is, and those elements. And it just was soft and comforting to be Mm. in that place. Mm, Lovely. Thank you. Yes, back there. When all the words were gone, I felt whole for the first time in Mm. a long, long time. Wow. She felt whole for the first time in a long time. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes? Um, when when I drop the eye, which I don't think I do very often, it's at first terrifying. It's like falling or floating or yeah. being in um, some sort of a... Uh, being at the planetarium when the space is receding. And then I do something, I don't know, breathe, I suppose, and then it's... Somewhat exhilarating, still a little scary. Yes, still a little scary. It's a lot of space. You realize how much space those words take up in our mind. When we're without that, there's a lot of space. So part of our practice is making friends with space, not being so frightened by it. It's actually fine. But we don't know that until we make friends with it. Yes. The place I ended up was nobody somebody. Nobody Nobody, somebody? somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Liked it. Yes. We sort of can do both. Yeah. Good. There's a few in the center there. Oh. When I dropped the I, I saw us all as one. Hmm. Lovely. Well, I'm a little reluctant to say, but when I erased the eye, every image I had, I wasn't in anymore. And it was just like space had erased me. Yes. And it, it wasn't was, pleasant. It, no, it, was, it was, wasn't because it, it's, I thought, this is what it will be like when I'm gone. I simply wasn't in the picture anywhere. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what to do with that. Well, I would say that that's a piece of it. It's not all of it. There's more to see. And it will come. Okay. Nothing to be frightened by. I think my experience was similar, but all I saw was light. I saw a yellow light, but it was a very peaceful yellow light. Mm -hmm. But maybe 
it's it was just yellow light. Yes. <laughs> Fine. Uh, I'm interested in, in how you make friends with it because I went to a five-day retreat and that happened and I stayed with it and it was just horrifying and stopped me from meditating for a long, long oh, time. Yeah. I didn't get to the next point. So it's very important to me if you could ma- say a little yeah. bit about so that. We how need to, make friends to, with it. We need to um, make friends with it. One way to do that is to ground in the body, to keep coming back into your body when you get frightened or just touching your body. I'm here, feeling your feet on the ground, feeling your breath, feeling your belly, feeling something pleasant in the present. The sound of a bird, the sight, the hearing, whatever it is that can be comforting. We need to remind ourselves we're still very much on the earth. We haven't gone anywhere. We're not going anywhere. We're not disappearing. All those ideas about no self can sound really stark and frightening, like well, I'm going to disappear, I'll go in the void, nobody will know I'm here, I'm, I'm, you know, all that. But it's actually just the mind's fear. So to keep coming back into the body, do a body, do you do yoga or tai chi or anything? Yeah, keep doing that. That might be a good practice to sustain you right now. By doing body practices, little by little. There is nothing to be afraid of, but it's easy for me to say, right? So I spent a lot of time in the first part of my practice working with fear. I had no idea what it was even about, but it was about this. It was about letting go. But little by little, it gets better, believe me. Yeah. Yes, Melinda. I have been full of anxiety and fear for a a long time now. I woke up with it every morning. And today, when I dropped the eye, it was this beautiful blank. It was blank. It was spaciousness, Uh and it was emptiness. But that's all it was. It was a neutral experience. But now that I was hearing how, what do you do with it? I was so grateful that I didn't have that monkey mind running around and Uh 98 thoughts. Uh So it was really comfortable and I have found this increased spaciousness in my life, mm-hmm. and it's like I have more time and space to do things. So the mm-hmm. spaciousness has been a huge gift. Good. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Most of us fill space. We move into a new house, and we immediately want to fill it up as you know with as much stuff as possible. So what you know, part of making friends with space is the absence of that activity. Just notice when you're in a room there, you feel the space is enjoyable. Or notice a beautiful view when you're up on a hill. There's nothing bad here. It's just lovely space. You begin to notice it in your life as something that is not threatening. A few years ago, I had to give up a lot of my possessions. And I was very, very nervous about that. And when it happened, it was wonderful. And I had the same kind of sensation when I let go of the eye. I didn't lose anything. It just freed it up. So there was, there was no loss. There was no loss, uh-uh. yes. Yeah. 
Yes, well, um, we're going to have to stop. Is there any last comment? I think we're done. Oh, maybe there's one here. One more. And then we'll end. Oh, the CEs, yes. Okay, Sean, thank you. Yeah, she's back there. She's, yeah, but we're not quite finished. Give us a moment. I found a great sense of freedom when I got rid of the eye. Felt very liberated. Very liberated. Well, this is what the Buddha was talking about, folks. You're hearing a taste in the room. You can hear it, right? There's some kind of something available to us that we don't know until we take a look, until we are willing to explore, until we are willing to let go of some of our fixed notions about who we are and what we need and yada, yada, yada. So one of the best ways of... And so the Avatamsaka Sutta, it says this beautiful thing I want to leave you with, which is having no view of self, one remains peaceful. Having no view of self, one remains peaceful. This is a pointer towards the experience some of you just had. Having no view of oneself. I'm good, I'm bad, I'm the greatest, I'm the worst, I'm, I'm a teacher, I'm nobody, I'm, I'm, you know, all those views. Those are views that we adopt of who we are. When that, those are absent, mostly there's peace. So that, that is the end of the formal teaching. Now, I would like to put in a plug for retreats because it's on retreat that we get to explore more deeply what all these teachings are pointing to. And you have been very attentive today. I appreciate your willingness to hang in there despite being tired or restless or whatever else you've been carrying today. But I, f- I have felt your sincerity and your willingness to to really look and open yourself to hearing things that are perhaps unfamiliar and new and so anyway I want to thank you all and I want to thank you all very much for being who you are and interested in this development that is trying to occur in your own hearts and minds and allowing the teachings to affect you and your lives and those around you. And we like to remember that as we practice here at Spirit Rock, we're not doing it only for ourselves. It can seem a little selfish or you know, self-centered, but actually we are doing this with the, the great wish that these teachings be a benefit to Uh, the world and to helping those in need so thank you all for coming and and uh, hope to see you again pretty soon bye-bye nancy is this how i can reach you
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.